The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Our guest today is a first-year member of the Utah Opera Resident Artist Program baritone Brandon Bell. Brandon grew up in Suffolk, Virginia and studied voice at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music and San Francisco Conservatory of Music before moving to Utah last fall. We'll hear about Brandon's operatic journey up to this point, and he'll share his unique perspective as a person of color in an art form that is still working towards equal representation. Welcome, Brandon. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So let's start in Suffolk. What are your earliest musical experience memories growing up in Virginia? And um, did you, I mean, did you grow up singing different style of music than opera or did you always know you were going to be a classical singer? Take us through the early days. Yeah. So I grew up in a family. I wouldn't say we were a super musical family, but there was a lot of music in my house. Um, my dad was in the army. And so for a good chunk of his time in the army, especially in my younger years, he was doing a lot of singing. He was in a singing group that traveled around and went to different um, bases and performed for a lot of people in the, in the um, armed forces. So I grew up watching my dad perform a lot, singing a lot of different styles of music. I remember him singing a lot of Louis Armstrong, and they did Prince covers and Whitney Houston. So I was listening to a lot of different um, types of music. And then my mom, I remember like almost every Sunday, she would turn on gospel music, and that's how we knew it was time to clean the house on Sundays. And so <laughs> we, I grew up like loving music um, and grew up wanting to be a singer, I think, from a very young age. One of my first Christmas gifts I remember getting was like a really like, it was like a rainbow um, cassette player with the microphone attached. And there's a video of me at like three years old, like belting into it like some R&B song um, as a little kid. And so I think I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a singer, but classical music didn't really come to me until I was in high school. When you hear gospel music now, do you just go grab a vacuum cleaner? Or <laughs> I mean, I still do. That's kind of, when I do clean my house, it, there's usually gospel music playing. It's just, I don't know, a cultural thing that we all do. It's a nice tradition. Yeah. yeah. And your parents were, I'd like to say, very smart about your musical education. They did not put you in voice lessons right away. No, no. I was in about second grade when I told my parents that I wanted to be like Alicia Keys because the song Fallen had just come out and she was playing the piano and singing and I was like, I want to do that. But I think when I said that, I knew I wanted to like be a singer and they were like, okay, we'll put you in piano lessons. And I was like, can I take singing lessons instead? And they were like, no, piano is the basis of all music. So you're going to take piano lessons. And I was livid about it for the next seven years until I got... But now you are happy you took it, right? Yes. When it comes to learning music. Yes. I wish I had loved it a little bit more when I was a kid, because once I got to undergrad and actually had to pass piano class in order to get my degree, I was like, I wish I retained all the things from my childhood. <laughs> Brandon went to an arts high school. Yeah. Um, I went to the Governor's School for the Arts in Norfolk, Virginia, um, which is an incredible art school. We have musical theater. We have dance, drama. All of all, all the things that you would want to have in an arts high school, um, but basically, it takes kids from the seven cities of the Hampton Roads area in public schools. So we'd go to public school for the first portion of day, our day, and then be bust off to Norfolk, Virginia, and we do. I was I would be there from two to five every day, studying vocal music, and so that's where it's kind of funny. They always talk about how they plunked a bunch of kids out of um, these cities that had never heard opera before. And if you wanted to be in the vocal music department, you were singing opera. So I sang my first opera role 
when I was about 14, I did Papageno and the Magic Flute in German with no cuts and English dialogue. Wow. So, no kidding. Yeah, we jumped right in. Well, so once you did decide that classical music was your direction, were there certain performers that really inspired you or that you wanted to emulate? My high school did a really good job. We had this class called Vocal Music Survey um, in which it would literally just be an hour of us exploring a bunch of different singers. The first people I remember really falling in love with was Leontine Price, who I still am obsessed with to this day. Um, I remember being shown this video of Jesse Norman singing the Earl Koenig, um, which is like a like it's like a music video kind of, and we, I remember watching it and being astonished by by what she could do with her voice and her storytelling. Um, and then some other people, Bryn Terfel was someone that I really because he was a low voice, and that was I was at that point in time I was singing. Um, bass baritone stuff um and so yeah I, we were just inundated with a lot of different singers and we would go to the metropolitan opera every year and we would see operas at virginia opera every year so i was very well um becoming used to a lot of great singing in general rest in peace jesse first of all oh but, my goodness yeah yeah you know i don't think it'll come as a shock to anybody that this high school that you went to in norfolk has an extraordinary track record for turning out amazing opera artists. Yeah. And not just opera artists, but particularly some very notable black opera artists. Yeah. So how did that experience set you up for success in pursuit of this career? Um, well, you know, government school, I mean, just from doing operas as a younger kid, I had, I feel like I got a head start on the idea of like preparing a role, um, the idea of like the, the type of dedication that it takes to be successful in this was something that was drilled into me from the time I was 13. And so I think I became a lot uh, really comfortable with those concepts very early on um, in a way that a lot of my colleagues, I think, they kind of stumbled into opera a little bit later um, or found it a little bit later. And also, you know, we talk about the incredible singers that have come from my school. I These are people that we, as students in high school, were aware of um, that were just doing great post high school, like um, Will Liverman, who just became the first black man to sing Papageno at the Metropolitan Opera. I knew that name when I was a sophomore in high school, and that was someone that I looked up to as a, a, a sophomore in high school. Um, Freddie Ballantyne, who just had an incredible run in Porgy and Bess at the Met. I met him when I was 12 in auditioning for Governor's School, and, and, and he was presented to me as someone, because I came in as a boy soprano, and he came in as a boy soprano. So he was introduced to me as someone like, you need to get to know this guy. Um, and he's the reason why I went to CCM also. Hmm. Um, and so it was, we were presented with a lot of great singers in general that came from our school. Um, but the idea of being able to visualize like black singers that started where I started and that were going on to do incredible things, whether I think at the time Will had just gotten into Juilliard. And so it was like one of those things like, oh, wow, that can be something that I can aim for. And now that I'm out of school, um, these are still people that I still look up to and admire as what I would hope to be my next steps in my career. So it's incredible to have kind of started these relationships when I was 13 and still have them now, 12 years later. Well, you mentioned the incredibly successful Porgy and Bess that the Metropolitan Opera has done this year. And uh, it's the first time they have presented Porgy and Bess in, since the 70s, maybe? It's, it's been a it, while. It had been since the uh, golden uh, silver anniversary of Poor Game Best. And everything sold out. They had to add extra performances. There was such a response to this. So there's obviously, in this huge cast, we see there's so many talented black singers out there. And yet the representation in opera is still not representative mm -hmm. of that population. So what has been your experience in the opera world with representation 
And what do you see the most room for improvement? Yeah, I mean, I well, first off, that Porgy and Bess was incredible. It really was. Um, like one of the most incredible things that I've seen come from that company in, a, in quite a while, um, or something that I, that really moved me and touched me. Um, and I think you know, to I was I saw it in the broadcast in the theater, and so to sit in that theater and see so many black people on stage, and at the Metropolitan Opera, arguably one of the most in, incredible and important opera houses in the country and maybe even the world. It was a moment of being very proud. And then I asked my question, but I asked myself the question, where where are they the rest of the season? And there's an interesting thing, um, you know, we're in the season right now where we're seeing a lot of opera companies put out their um, their rosters for the next season or they're announcing their seasons. And, you know, ever since I was in college, it's like one of those things that I'd be excited to do is go through and see who's singing what at each season. Or when a young artist program puts out their young artists for the summer, you look and see who's on that list. Like that's part of being informed about who's in your, your um, industry. Um, but one of the things that I do, and I know my friends do because we talk about it every season, is we look at it and we count how many people of color are on that list. And I remember a year ago um, looking at a roster of a really prestigious young artist company or a young artist program and seeing 40 singers and there were maybe four people of color and one of them was black. And so that's that then to me sends the message that there aren't enough talented black singers out there which can be really, really hard when you're in the industry and you, you're training to become an opera singer and you're looking around, you don't see people like you and you think that it's because that there just aren't enough of us. But then I look at the Metropolitan Opera and I see Porgy and Bess, which has dozens of us. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so that's not true. We are there. You were able to find us for Porgy and Bess. Why can't you find us for other things? And so I think it's an interesting thing. I think that Porgy and Bess is an incredible, incredible piece of work. Um, it gives a lot of black singers opportunity. Um, but to to say that they're good enough to be on the stage of Metropolitan Opera to sing Porgy and Bess, I think that that means that we are also good enough to be in any other show. Um, and so I think that, to answer your second question, a room for growth is that there just needs to be more equity and opportunity for us. Um, and I think that one of those areas is from companies being brave enough to to go towards more colorblind casting and ca- casting that casting of these these period pieces that we all know our bohems and our and our traviatas and the the shows that everyone likes and you know give the people that you deemed good enough to be in poor game best the opportunity to sing that repertoire as well this idea that we're only good enough to be in the shows that are essential to our race or that's the only time that we are called to be in the room is really a disservice to what we all can do and contribute to this art form. I'm personally glad that the Met is doing Porgy now. It's 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 forced us to, I think, confront this issue and ask mm-hmm. these questions of not only people, you know, like you and who are performers, but people like us who are consumers of, yeah. of the art form. And, you know, the Met has a lot to answer for in this regard. They didn't they didn't do Porgy when it was written. I don't even think they had a, a black singer in a leading role until the 60s. And who was that, Carol? Uh, it was Marian Anderson. Right. So, I mean, the Met had a lot to answer for in this regard, so I'm glad they're doing this piece. But you're absolutely right. This, this, this can't be the only time they reckon with this issue. Exactly. And I think, you know, there's a lot of fear in black singers, young black singers as well, to... We're told, do not approach Porgy and Bess as a young black singer because you will be pigeonholed. If you... Um, if one of your first gigs is to be 
in Porgy and Bess. I have a friend that's an incredible young black tenor, um, and he's like, I don't ever want to sing um, Sport in Life because I know once I do it, no one will ever hear me sing something else. Hmm. And so I think it's one of those things. If you could sing Sport in Life, you can sing a lot of other incredible um, tenor pieces in the repertoire. Um, so I think people need to people just need to be more open-minded and, and give those opportunities and create that equity so that we can see ourselves on stage. You know, you're a member of the Utah Opera Resident Artist Program, which I'm sure is a lot of fun for you. And one of the things that you get to do, we've had other resident artists on this program, one of the things you get to do is perform outreach concerts all across the state of Utah. And as a person of color, how is your role different in that area from your colleagues? Yeah, I mean, outreach is so, so important. I remember um, being in elementary school and like a jazz band coming to my to perform for us. And I remember after seeing that, I went home immediately and was like, I wanna learn how to play the saxophone. Like, and my parents said no. But <laughs> but the the idea of, and I mean, it's because they knew I wanted to be a singer. Like that was, it was like, Brandon, you're gonna go to middle school and you're gonna sing in the choir. That's what you wanna do. Um, but that, that, them coming to perform for us had an impact that if I, I think me going home and being like, I want to do this, and if my parents had been like, okay, who knows what could have happened, right? And it's because you saw And it's because I something. saw it. Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, when I go into these schools um, and we do our game show, and so when I'm a contestant, I burst through the curtain, and that's the first time the kids see me. There are a lot of young people of color, um, but obviously we're in Utah, so it's not the majority. Um, but when I go out and I look at these kids, and I, I know we have a moment of like, I see you and you see me. And it's one of those things I feel like a lot of, I'll say a lot of white kids are taught from a very young age that you can do anything you want to do. You can be anything you want to be. And it's presented as fact. Um, but I think for a lot of us or a lot of kids of color, um, this idea of you can be anything you want to be is like a motivational thing. It's it's presented as... It's aspirational, it's, not foundational. Exactly. And yeah. so it's one of those things when you see someone doing something that you've never seen before, seeing someone that looks like you doing something you've never seen before, it then is like a door is opened. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that, that was an option for me, but now I've seen it and I know I can do it. And so it's one of those things like I know when I walk out and I see a little black kid in the audience and we make eye contact, it's one of those moments of yeah, I'm here singing an opera. You could do that as well. This has been some really important conversation. We just need to keep this light shined on this area and not forget to give attention to representation. And those of us who are in administrative capacities have to keep that in mind and encourage that on that side of the table as well as on the stage. We could talk about this for another 45 minutes yeah, or longer, but uh, we want to keep this compact and so I want to lighten things up just a little bit as a young opera singer is there a subject real or imagined and it doesn't have to be light it can be incredibly serious that is begging for an operatic treatment oh my goodness okay so first I'm gonna preface this by saying you probably know, don't know this Carol but all the other RAs make fun of me because I have lists on my phone for everything like Halloween costumes I want to do, names of a future dog that I maybe will never have, but I have lists on my phone for everything. And I literally have a list on my phone of people or things that I think would make a great opera. And so I'm just got like 10 things on them, so I won't give you all of them. Also because I don't want anyone to steal my ideas. Right. But you got to protect that. Got to protect them. So, but I think Andre Leon Talley right. would make an incredible 
figure for an opera. Um, if you don't know who that I, that is, he's um, an incredible black queer man who was um, at one time, ed I think, editor-in-large of Vogue magazine. Um, so one of the most impactful and incredible um, gay men in the United States. At and one a point huge, in time. colorful personality. Yes. As well. And there's so much around his story. I mean, I'm sure there had to be a lot of, a lot of um, struggle to become one of the most important people in fashion. I remember at some, at one point there was like um, an entire intervention that was headed in which they were like, you need to lose weight. And so there's so much like in oh, his wow. story. And I think that Andre Leon Talley, First, I want to play him. So if anyone takes this idea, I want to play him. But <laughs> okay. And that'll be a costume designer's dream as well yes. to put this show together. We need Andre Leon Talley the opera. I love that. That's a great one. Well, the other question that we ask um, everyone on this show, not just opera people, is whether or not during your life in theaters, because of the name of our show, you've ever seen or experienced a ghost? Ooh. If so, please give us details. I have never experienced a ghost, and I would like to keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to mess with the paranormal. Um, no, I have never, I have not had the pleasure or misfortune. Well, we're going to gonna come back to you after you've gone on some of more of these statewide tours, because sometimes you stay in historic buildings that are reputed to be haunted. Actually, so. and also, thanks to your Alicia Keys reference earlier in the show, everyone knows how young you are. So there's a lot more theater time in your future. Right. <laughs> the ghost thing might be yet to come. Brandon, thank you so much for being a guest today on the Ghost Light Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we've loved your frankness and your enthusiasm. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, or you can listen to us on Spotify or Stitcher. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for more information on upcoming performances. If you're not already a seasoned subscriber, click on the Tickets button to learn more about the benefits of being a part of our family of music lovers. The Utah Symphony and Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>